Welcome to the Public Health Power Hour podcast, a recording of live conversations with public health experts on the most important global health issues. I'm Steve Hamill, Vice President of Policy Advocacy and Communication at Vital Strategies. We're a global health organization and we're reimagining public health. At Vital Strategies, we believe that public health is everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. That means clean air and water, access to medicine and quality care, healthy food and places to get exercise, and removing bias and discrimination in healthcare. Here on the Public Health Power Hour, we get together to look at how the world around us shapes our health and how we can shape the environment so that everyone everywhere has the potential for great health. And if you want to join our conversations live, please follow us on Twitter under the handle VitalStrat. So welcome, uh, everyone, and thanks for logging into this week's Public Health Power Hour. Public Health Power Hour is a weekly clubhouse meetup to discuss the relationship between personal health and public health. And I'm really excited about today's guests and today's show. To us, public health means everything that surrounds you that makes great health possible. It means clean air and water. It means access to medicines and healthy food. It means places to get exercise and supportive culture and removing barriers to health like bias. And we think it's never been a more important time for this conversation. The COVID-19 pandemic, it's shown us that we have so much more to do to protect people's health. My name's Steve Hamill. Um, I started my career going door to door for environmental and students' rights. And three years and 10,000 conversations later, I wanted to do it at scale. Um, and so I moved into advocacy, advertising, and digital communications work. Fast forward 25 years, and now I'm working at Vital Strategies as the Vice President for Communication. Um, and I love working here because we work to improve public health around the world, but we also remain deeply committed to the experiences and perspectives of our partners in country and from people from all walks of life to create that, that shared way forward we need to improve public health. And we've had fantastic discussions each week on the war on drugs, on harm reduction, on uh, the World Health Assembly, and another one on bringing birth companions. Um, and we've got upcoming, great upcoming discussions, one on cycling and active transport, another one um, on how big oil, tobacco, and food are gaslighting us with advertising. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover or if you'd like to be on the show, uh, within the discussion, please email us at powerhour at vitalstrategies.org. But I'm really excited to get to this week's topic, women's health, and with our guest host, Princess Dina Mired. I just want to note that we see these weekly chats as, you know, engaging in open dialogue about different public health topics, and all the speakers are participating in their personal capacity, and their statements and views on this discussion represent their personal points of view. We also will be recording this show, um, although we will only rebroadcast those speakers who are on stage right now and have consented. Um, we like to warm up this room with an exercise we call Reimagine the News. Um, we know the first step to building a healthier world is envisioning an endpoint where we're going. So as I introduce our first guest, two guests, um, I've asked them to share a piece of news, anything that caught their eye from anywhere on any topic, um, and what that news would look like in a, a different world that gave greater priority to health. Um, our first guest is Her Royal Highness, Princess Dina Mired. She's a notable humanitarian and public health activist, tireless advocate for cancer control, and brings attention and momentum to this issue as a leading voice on the global stage. She's also Vital Strategies Special Envoy on Non-Communicable Disease. Princess Dina, welcome to the stage. Can you share with us a news article that caught your eye this week? Thank you so much, Steve, and welcome, everyone. And I hope we have a we truly have a great conversation. Um, I love this idea of looking at the news of the day, whether it is upsetting or even uplifting. And instead of simply accepting it or brushing over it, we should either acknowledge the positivity of a story or rethink a negative story by reimagining the end goal of how we would like our world to look like. It's a little bit like a moment of practicing advocacy and recommitting to a healthier world. 
I actually saw an article this week on July the 4th from the Daily Mail from the UK. And yes, I do apologize. I do admit that I do read the Daily Mail. <laughs> Please don't judge me on that. Um, anyhow, um, it was a perspective piece entitled, Why are hospitals turning a blind eye to racist patients who demand a white doctor? Written by Dr. Zishan Qureshi. Dr. Qureshi is British-born, but of Pakistani descent. And he writes about how health professionals who are not white have to learn to tolerate racist abuse just to do their jobs and help patients. All too often, their colleagues and the systems around them are complicit in that they work to smooth over problems instead of confronting them. For instance, accommodating racist patients with new doctors who are white. Reading Dr. Qureshi's story was truly upsetting, and I want to imagine what it would take to make this experience a thing of the past. If I were to reimagine a new title in a better world, better humane world, it would be as health leaders and doctors diversify public confidence in healthcare source. We should work towards this kind of headline. We know we need to diversify health leadership from government positions to doctors and in all sectors. We all know that diversity brings in different perspectives. We should be investing in it and supporting doctors like Dr. Qureshi in calling out and confronting systemic racism and racist attitudes. We also know that having multiple perspectives in leadership will lead to better care and better public health policies. I hope we can all work towards a future where we are actively anti-racist and build up and support the diverse health leadership that we need. Racism in health has no place. Thank you for that, uh, Princess Dina. I know leadership is one of the topics you'll be speaking to as you uh, facilitate the, the full discussion later. I want to invite a second article from one of our other panelists, Christina Chang. Christina is the deputy CEO of Vital Strategies, and her careers included leadership roles at Planned Parenthood, New York City Department of Health, and elsewhere, and she's a graduate of Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Christina, welcome to the stage. Is there an article you'd like us to reimagine this week? Um, hi, Steve. Thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, it's uh, funny where, where um, Princess Dina and I are, are um, have like the UK on our mind. Um, the item that caught my attention um, was a recent opinion piece in the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, um, and was uh, printed on um, June 29th. Its title is COVID-19 Equity and Inclusiveness. Um, and, but the subtitle actually says it all. Um, it reads, our woeful record must be turned around fast. And in the piece, the authors detail um, in data what I'm feeling and seeing personally. Um, I live in New York um, and I'm fully vaccinated. And I'm really struck at how much the U.S. is going back to normal while the pandemic rages um, around the world. So even within countries with high vaccination rates, we're seeing privileged communities gaining greater protection faster. And the one thing I found interesting in the op-ed is that they're, um, they talked about a truth and reconciliation process and reparations um, that acknowledge that we have left too many communities behind and allow damage um, to that will last a generation. And there's pushing for processes that repair this damage caused by the drastic inequity in, um, in our response to, uh, to COVID and in the rollout of vaccines. So it made me think um, that my reimagined title would be Following Roadmap, Global Vaccine Rollout Prioritizes the Most Vulnerable. And, um, you know, as I, as I noted, this op-ed pointed out that there were a number of, um, of proposals on the table already put on the middle of last year, long before vaccines were available. Um, and in my reimagined piece, we use them. Um, we recognize that our safety and health are bound up and dependent on the health and safety of other countries and populations and communities. Um, and so in my reimagined um, world and headline, we spent this year prioritizing our global healthcare workforce, um, vulnerable populations like the elderly, essential workers around the world. 
and we created free universal COVID testing. We built social supports that allowed people to shelter in place and when sick, isolate in comfort. We invested in um, our community health workers and our public health infrastructure. And in the end, we had fewer deaths, greater control, and possibly fewer variants. Um, and it's my hope that there's still time to make this our future um, closer to this imagined article. Thank you, Christina, for bringing that to the stage um, and, and to that reimagination of our future into this room. Uh, for the sake of time, we'll move on to the main, main discussion. I know Princess Dina will be introducing our third speaker that you see up on stage, Fatima Rinho, as discussion uh, progresses. I saw a hand raised. We're going to do some um, Q&A at the end. Uh, closer to the end of this hour. Uh, so please hold your thoughts and questions. We'd love to hear about your reimaginings. Um, and if you're just joining us, I've seen some people join in the last few minutes. We've just talked a bit about the news of the week and we're on to our main topic on women in health. We've had several fantastic experts, as we said, on this stage. Um, and uh, Princess Dina, I know you'll be leading the main discussion, but I just want to dig a little bit into your uh, history and what brings you into this fight for public health, you're a tireless advocate. Um, and I know part of your passion for this work started with your family's personal brush with cancer. Would you be willing to share a little bit about, you know, how that centers your, your work? Sure. Um, actually, cancer chose our family. I certainly did not choose cancer. I never even had cancer in my radar. Uh, in 1997, when our son Rakan, two days uh, short of his second birthday, he was diagnosed with ALL leukemia. Of course, he was of the lucky few to have had his rightful chance to be treated abroad, because at that time, in 1997, Jordan did not have cancer care or quality cancer care. So with the grace of God and great treatment abroad, I was able um, to call myself with my most unprivileged important title, a mother of a cancer survivor. Having gone through this experience, and it certainly was more than a brush with cancer, felt like more than being hit with cancer, I tried to imagine what it would have been like if I was told while, whilst my son was bleeding internally in the early days before we were properly diagnosed, that hello, um, Yes, your son has cancer, ALL leukemia. And yes, there is a cure for ALL leukemia that promises to deliver 95% chance for a cure. But I'm so sorry, I'm going to have to apologize that this miracle cure is not available for your son. So sorry, maybe because you don't live in the right hemisphere or you cannot afford the treatment. I couldn't even bear to think what that would be like. And we, of course, all know that this is the daily lot of thousands and thousands of cancer patients, especially in low middle income countries, where their children, even today with ALL leukemia, have, have probably a chance of 5% for a cure for a disease that can reach up to 95% chance for a cure. And that is how and why I entered the fight against cancer by becoming the first ever director general of the King Hussein Cancer Foundation and joined the team to help transform our hospital at the time from one tantamount to a morgue for cancer patients to come and die in, unfortunately, into a world-class accredited cancer center that is now saving lives day in, day out, not only for Jordanians, but also for patients in the region. Now, all mothers can hope to claim the coveted title of a mother of a cancer survivor. So my journey started with the personal, then it went to the grassroots action experience, and then to global advocacy. And I strongly believe that this order of events is the reason why I was elected to become the first ever UICC president from my region. Because I don't just bring in theory, I have lived the problem, I know what a lack of access to care looks like, and I was part of the solution in my own country, and therefore my voice had the authentic credibility of that. And now, of course, I'm a proud special envoy to Vital Strategies, an organization that, like you said, does not just highlight problems, but also gives tools and solutions. Thank you. You know, it's week after week we have uh, 
advocates and activists on, and we often ask them what motivates them. And often it's there's a, there's a personal a moment that has that they've turned into a purpose, you know, a wider purpose. And um, thank you for sharing yours with ours. And I, I know over the last year, you've remained vocal and active in the face of COVID-19. You've brought that energy. Um, and in terms of women's health, what are you taking away from this moment? I know there was the recent UN Generation Equality Forum. Um, there's there seems to be this you know increased focus and potentially transformative moment. What are you taking away from this moment for women's health and gender equality globally? Well, um, COVID nineteen, we all know it shook the world in more ways than one. And the irony of COVID nineteen is that it required us to wear masks, and yet it unmasked so many uncomfortable truths. One of those uncomfortable truths was, and is, still is, the shocking vulnerability of the hard-won status of women's rights that we achieved tooth and nail since the Beijing conference 25 years ago, whether on health, economy, security, and safety rights. And this, quite frankly, speaks volumes and begs the question of how sustainable and entrenched in systems those gains actually were. For the whole pyramid of women's rights, including health rights, to crumble against this pandemic crisis, we all know that coronavirus struck a big blow on all, but the effects were especially hard on women. Women were most exposed to the virus, especially for the fact that 70% of our health workforce, our women, who are the heroes on the front line, putting their lives and their families at risk. Women also suffered loss of employment and livelihood, and the ensuing benefits, such as access to healthcare and insurance, noting that the majority of women globally work in the informal economy, which literally stopped, let alone disruptions of other essential health services from routine immunizations to prenatal care, skilled birth attendance, cancer and NCD services, let alone gender-based violence that has reached worrying levels, and the list goes on and on. To the point that President Macron, at the opening of the UN Generation Equality Forum, labeled the coronavirus as an anti-feminist virus. I would love for everyone to watch the opening panel. What I appreciate most is the fact that the forum put the core principle, principles up front and center. Most of all, they reminded people that feminism is humanism. Feminism is not some luxurious options for countries to adopt or not. Feminism is the demand for basic human rights. Full stop. All those rights are interlinked, and that is why gender-based approach should pervade every aspect of policy making in all sectors. This year is truly an inflection point. If we are thinking to build back better post-corona, without gender perspective at the core of every single policy, we will simply fail. As writers Sioban Kelly and Marion Subah aptly said, if the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has not been gender neutral, then our response must not be gender neutral. However, if we decide to build back better with the acknowledgement that we have no choice but to harness and invest equitably in half the population, that are women and girls, then there would be a real opportunity to reimagine a future where women's health and rights are non-negotiable, gender equality achievable, and working towards them is the norm. Thank you for underscoring the potential and urgency of this moment for women's health. And I'm going to bow out and turn the rest of this conversation over to you to facilitate with our other guests, Christina Chang and Fatima Marino. Thank you, Steve. Um, although women's health is a cross-cutting issue, I thought we might start by looking at maternal health and sexual health and reproductive rights. Christina, I know that Vital Strategies has started a new program in this area in three countries to advance women's health in these areas. Can you kick us off by sharing a little bit about that program? What are its goals? What is distinct about its approach? Yeah. Hi, Dina. It's uh, really great to be with you today. And um, I'm really excited to share more about our data-driven policy initiative to improve women's health. Um, the initiative aims to reduce maternal morbidity and mortality that result from unintended pregnancies, 
unsafe abortions and complications um, in pregnancy and childbirth. We work in close collaboration with ministries of health and local partners to better collect, analyze, and apply data um, to develop evidence-based policy and drive advocacy to close the gap between the laws and policies that are on the books and actual practice. Um, we're working in three countries, Bangladesh, Rwanda, and Uganda, um, and each country experiences a heavy mortality and social burden due to unsafe abortion. Um, but they also represent a really wide range of legal policy and program contexts related to abortion and, and unintended pregnancy. So, for example, in Bangladesh, um, we're seeing complications um, on the rise, potentially due to the increased for informal use of medical menstrual regulation. Um, in Rwanda, there actually have been um, some re recent reforms that have broadened access to legal abortion. These are not well understood by providers, and um, stigma uh, persists limiting service access and quality. And the Ugandan context is the most restrictive, um, with the current national service guidelines on hold due to controversies related to um, adolescent contraceptive access, as well as abortion. So all three countries have identified gaps in the availability and use of timely data, and we're working with each to strengthen data collection, analysis, and use that will be used to inform strategies to improve um, policy, advocacy, communications, and program implementation. Um, taking into consideration that they need to fit um, within each local context. So it's really, um, it's really a experiment of um, using the tools, I think, the, tr the traditional approach um, of vital strategies, um, using uh, data-driven um, and evidence-based um, interventions and, um, and really trying to apply it to these three very different contexts um, to be able to um, increase access to safe abortion um, and in the process hoping to be able to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. Certainly a very important work and certainly this is a mark of vital strategies, data-driven and evidence-based. And I have to say in my own country, somebody asked me that very question about how was there any, how much progress has been in women's rights? Honestly speaking, I could not answer so well because the data is not available. So this is really an interesting work in a tradition area of women's health. But I also wanted to call out your opinion piece from last week on how women's health is much more than maternal and reproductive health. Um, and I agree with you on that because, you know, we are the sum also of all our body parts. You know, for lately it's been, you know, we've been divided into our organs, different organizations taking over certain organs <laughs> of ours and lobbying uh, on their behalf. And, and a reminder that we are one whole person. So it's also cancer control, data collection, prevention policies, women's health isn't a single issue. It is a cross-cutting public health area that is often overlooked and undeserved, uh, underserved. In layman terms, can you reiterate a bit about your perspective in the op-ed? Um, yes, um, thank you so much for the plug for the op-ed. Um, and uh, you know, actually I, I noticed that um, in our audience, um, Dr. Oni Alawabi is, is, has joined us, and she is um, our new director for um, the Women's Health in, um, Initiative that I just described. And so um, hopefully during Q&A, we'll be able to hear a little bit more from her. Um, really glad that she's joined us. But back to this op-ed, um, I think that I totally agree with you, um, Dina, that all too often women's health um, we're, we're sort of, is limited to reproductive health, um, and we are actually much more than our uteruses, right? We're much more than that. Um, and in the op-ed, I argue that when we think of women's health, we need to think more broadly, and we need to actually really be thinking about non-communicable diseases, or NCDs, which are the greatest threat to women's health and well-being. Um, NCDs, which include heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, are responsible for two in every three deaths among women each year. Um, and the factors that drive non-communicable diseases um, are in the environments that we live in, the food we eat, and the air we breathe. Um, in the op-ed, I offered a number of examples, and I'll just briefly share two here. Um, the first one is really about poor air quality um, and, and air pollution, something that people I don't think um, 
it's it's starting to get more recognized about the the health impacts um, of air pollution and um, poor air quality claims uh, over six million lives every year, um, including two million due to household air pollution. Um, currently, millions of households rely on traditional stoves and polluting fuels, and these the smoke poses huge risks to the health for women who are most often responsible um, for cooking and caring for their families. Um, we need to address this leading cause of exposure for women and promote clean household energy, including access to cleaner fuels and better technologies for cooking. Um, the other example I like to share, and this I, I talk about this um, all the time. I can't shut up about um, about the about CRVS. Um, I'd like to share something around the collection of data of the key events of our lives, um, namely our birth, death, marriage, and divorce. Um, the events are captured in civil registration and vital statistics, or CRVS systems. And on a national level, these systems help governments identify and respond to diseases that take the highest toll on the population. Um, but at an individual level, it's about being counted, and it means so much more. Um, these are legal documents that can help women and girls claim their rights. So, for example, birth certificates offer proof of a girl's age and can protect them from um, unwanted early marriage and allow them to complete their education. And marriage certificates are critical to defending women's rights to child custody, property, and inheritance. But we see um, really stark gender inequalities that render women and their children invisible. Um, and this was always shocking to me is globally, 40% of deaths are unregistered, right? And like talk about a data gap that this is something that countries rely on to set priorities and allocate um, investments and resources. Um, and yet for it's, we we're, the data is, is so incomplete. Um, and added to that, a quarter of births of children under the age of five remain unregistered. Women are much more likely, much, much less likely than men to have their deaths um, registered particularly because they're less likely to leave behind an inheritance and because they're less able to bear the costs of registration. So investment in stronger CRVS systems will have a significant effect on gender equality for more accurate investments in the disease and conditions that are making us sick to better access to education, property, and wealth among women. Thank you. Thank you, Christina. And I totally agree with you because Actually, our cancer um, statistics were so underreported uh, when we had so much stigma about cancer in Jordan because, you know, the death certificates did not record properly uh, the reason for mortality. And uh, so when that was fixed, we suddenly saw a complete upsurge of cases simply because of this. So thank you for highlighting that and the importance of proper registration and information and data so countries can utilize that to fix problems. Uh, I'd like to bring in Fatima Marino on, in on the conversation about women's health as a cross-cutting issue. Fatima is a public health advocate and professional working in Vital Strategies Brazil office. First of all, Fatima, I would like to acknowledge the difficult circumstances in Brazil right now due to COVID and the personal and professional stress that you uh, may be under. Um, so please note that we are all thinking of you. You're an expert in the use of data for decision making. We know the health and social burdens of women are often invisible. And then they don't get, of course, because of that, they don't get attended the attention they deserve. You have tackled this issue directly in Brazil. Can you share a bit about that? Thank you, Princess Dina. It is true. Public health and policy decisions start with data. Data drives us which health areas we must prioritize. But around the world, we see that data is hiding major health threats to women, especially gender-based violence. Good vital statistics and good analysis are key. In Brazil, causes of death among childbearing women are under surveillance, suspecting that little gender-based violence was going unreported. It was set out a mortality surveillance to dig into the data and triangulate it with the other sources. What we found was shocking. There is a hidden epidemic of femicide in Brazil and domestic violence impacting women's health. 
In Brazil, women exposed to violence have an estimated mortality risk that is nearly eight times higher than that of the general human population, with a combined estimated of 400 deaths per week as a direct and indirect consequence of exposure to violence. Every day, women have their death recorded as traffic injuries or heart attacks or suicides when they are dying from causes related to violence. We realized that we were many, we, we had many missed opportunities by health services in supporting women and children living under domestic violence. Our report was an important moment. It brought attention to the issue and a new surveillance system called VIVA, that means live in Portuguese, started in 64% of municipalities. It led to more attention being paid to autopsies and more rigorous data to identify death rooted in violence. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Fatima. Uh, I mean, this truly shows, you know, how uh, everything is interlinked and that how important real data uh, to uncover hidden uh, problems and make women's problems and miseries, uh, you know, uncovered uh, for the whole world to see and, and to react to. So it is a powerful example at looking at gender dimension in every health issue, including health fundamentals like the collection analysis of mortality data. Fatima, from your experience, what other steps might we have to take? Well, well first of all, congrats for this question. Going beyond maternal health and looking at all health areas with a gender lens is important. As you said in the beginning, to go beyond, we need to put women's rights in the agenda. Health and rights are linked. Set out a mortality surveillance, implementing the concept of avoidable death and suspected cause of death for young women. Our research found that every woman exposed to violence will experience an increased risk of mortality, regardless of her place of residence, age group, racial or ethnic group, marital status, or socioeconomic status. When violence involves a partner or an ex-partner, and when it is self-inflicted, women at greatest risk are those in the age of a group 10 to 19 years, followed by those in the age group of 20 to 29 years. We found that pregnant women living under a violence by intimate partner are at higher risk for femicide after the delivery compared to other pregnant women. And we did it triangulating three different databases, surveillance data, mortality data, and live birth data. So with this information, we could think the action from the health sector. So we realized that women's victims of violence are coming to health services searching for care, searching for heal, but they are not being listened. When we constructed the journey of those women in health service, we saw we are missing so many opportunities to address violence. They are hospitalized for injury, or even during pregnancy, during routine care, or attempts of suicide, untreatable hypertension, etc. This is much more important to pay attention in youth, adolescents, because here in Brazil, 45% of rapes occur at home. It's a domestic sexual violence. So having the health services with us working to identify this violence, it could empower our interventions. Now, addressing gender-based violence and domestic violence and, and having this allies with health services is basic for us, and basic to give more support for those women and children, even. No, not just attend, uh, having them in the health service as uh, sick people, but also thinking in the all determinants of their situation. That's what we, it's important to do. Thank you for the question.
Thank you, Fatima. It, it shows very much the success of your work is because you mapped out the data according to the women's journey. And that is the logical thing to do. And many um, countries don't do that. And I'm sure my own doesn't do that. This is amazing. And I really look forward to follow more about your important work. Um, just a general question, actually, for either of you, Christina or Fatima. Last week's Generation Equality Forum at the UN was a notable milestone, like we said, I said in the beginning. And, and like I said, the opening panel was fantastic, and I reiterate, everyone should watch it. Why do you think partnership this time has a chance to work? I, you know, I certainly felt strength in the coalition. They seem to bring everyone together, youth groups, civil society, government, corporates, and philanthropy. And supposedly they brought the money um, to uh, back up the, com the commitments. What stuck out for you both? Any of you can answer, Christina or Fatima or both. Well, I'll start. Um, I think what, what struck out to me was, um, first, $40 billion to advance gender equality is pretty remarkable, right? And so, um, and this was, this was um, the collective efforts of private foundations and governments and, um, and corporations. Um, so that, that's, that I think was quite remarkable. But I think what really struck me um, was that, you know, when they held the last um, conference on, on gender equality in Beijing um, over 25 years ago, um, I think that, you know, the, the biggest takeaway there was what became um, an iconic cry from Hillary, Hillary Clinton's declaration that human rights are women's rights and women's rights are human rights. Um, that sounded so radical, um, I think at the time, and you know, um, I had read somewhere that they actually turned her mic off when she when she said that um, because it was you know it, it sort of caused such a um, it was considered so um, so progressive and and such a radical statement. Um, you know, we look back at twenty five years, and um, I think what was really what's what's remarkable to me in um, the recent um, Generation Equality Forum um, was that they really were. You know, it wasn't just enough to have these rallying cries and these statements, um, and that they actually required participants, um, whether they were you know the UN member states um, or they were activists, to um, make clear, measurable commitments across um, six different policy areas. So they were being much more intentional um, and, and forceful in, in having people make those, those commitments. And the policy areas included sort of the traditional women's issues, such as eliminating gender-based violence and increasing access to sexual and reproductive health. Um, but it also broadened it to include um, and I was really pleased to see this much more holistic measures um, that didn't, you know, again, didn't didn't um, limit, I think, um, women to their biologies. Right. And, and much more holistic measures such as investing in gender focused um, climate change solutions. So really sort of tackling under highlighting the biggest um, global challenges, not just in health, but that affect, um, affect all of us around the world um, and, and putting a gender lens on it, um, such as climate change. And so that's what I think was really remarkable and, um, and that, you know, that we're really moving beyond platitudes um, and into measurable actions um, that, that countries are, are committing to. Thank you, uh, Christina. And I also like the fact that they put the youth at the center of it all, at the core. Uh, I felt that there is more seriousness in that. They were not add, added as anecdotal as they usually are. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was really great as, as well. Mm -hmm. But isn't this also about having women in leadership positions? You know, uh, for all the skeptics um, that always uh, question the performance of women um, uh, in times of crisis. You know, during COVID, we have seen the power of women in leadership positions. From Iceland to New Zealand to Singapore to Germany, women leaders have led better responses to the coronavirus with science and empathy. They have established a new brand of leadership. You know, there was no negotiation on that. We've seen it, we've heard it, and we've seen the results in our own eyes. 
Um, so we do need more women leaders represented in all sectors, including health, so women can bring in their magic and empathy towards getting things done. Christina, you're in a leadership position at an influential civil society group. What do you think will, take, will it take to get more women into those circles? Uh, it's a million dollar question, right? Um, yeah. I think that, you know, while we have seen gains um, of women in holding leadership positions, and you rattled off um, a number of, of them in, in um, the prime ministers that have led countries through um, the COVID um, pandemic in their, in, in their nations. Um, but, you know, as, um, as uh, Flumizi uh, Malabi the executive director of UN Women noted um, at the forum, women still only represent a quarter of managers, a quarter of lawmakers um, around the world, a quarter of those that are at the table um, addressing some of the most pressing issues of our time. Um, and uh, I think that to change the dynamic, we have to attack it both on the supply side and the demand side. Right. And so on the supply side, um, we continue to see the burden of caregiving being borne dis disproportionately by women. Um, yes. And we've seen this as a stark reminder um, with women leaving the workforce in droves in much greater numbers to manage the disruptions to family and schooling that are, have been brought on by the pandemic. Um, so first and foremost, we need a cultural shift um, so that caregiving is more equally borne by, um, by women and men. Um, but until then, I think we need to create workplaces that support women and families. Um, we need to see more flexibility in our work schedules. We need to have better access to childcare so that women don't have to step back from their careers or get pushed out of the workforce entirely. And, you know, these measures work. Um, we see that um, in countries that invest in them, we have much higher rates of women in leadership positions in the public sector, in the private sector, in the, in the civil society and, and, um, and NGO sectors. These are the countries that have made these investments, and we see women rising um, to positions of power. And I loved how you talked about leading with, um, with science leading with, and leading with empathy. Um, yes. And, um, and having that real sort of understanding, I think just bringing a different lens um, to uh, to what leadership could look like um, and, um, and and carry um, countries, companies and organizations forward. And on the demand side, I think we as women need to take more space and demand others to make more space for us. Um, you know, when I think about taking space, you know, that some of that is just strengthening our own networks um, among women to lift each other up. Um, we, you know, for more more mentorship, um, being more intentional and tapping each other for opportunities to demonstrate our expertise and leadership. I love that we've got a pan, an all women panel here, um, you know, representing, you know, three different parts of the world and different perspectives and kind of continuing to, to um, construct, I think, those opportunities um, is, is incredibly important. And we need those who are currently in power um, and who are, you know, mostly men to be making more space to recognize the value of women in leadership positions and using their power and their authority to make more space for women to lead. And we are seeing examples of that, right? We are seeing um, men who are in power making space on their cabinets, on their, you know, in their leadership, in governments, um, making space in um, in government, in boardrooms, um, in in corporations to um, to have women lead. And um, and we're seeing we're seeing that shift. Um, more needs to be done, but I, I am hopeful that um, we'll continue to see um, that rise. And um, and again, pushing both on sort of the supply and the demand side of things. Thank you, Christina. I mean, you know, the whole world has to have the intelligence uh, to really want to harness all the other tools that we bring on the table, right? Um, in, in leading, you need so many tools to be a leader and we bring other skills uh, on board. And uh, yeah, we need to also demand it. It's not going to come all by itself. We need to demand it. Um, funnily enough, I just want to say something. You know, I'm a come from Jordan and I'm a Muslim and people have all kinds of presumptions about our societies and so on and so forth. And funnily enough, our Prophet Muhammad, uh, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he was a, a feminist. 
actually. Uh, believe it or not, I know that many countries don't even, you know, even in our own society, they somehow conveniently forget about that. Um, our prophet uh, was an employee of his later wife, believe it or not, who was older than him, 15 years. And when they got married, she actually was the one to propose to mm. him. And this, for some reason, when you see nowadays, I see, unfortunately, our religion being misrepresented and taking the power of women, unfortunately, you know, you, you kind of shut them up when you say that, you know, you say, how come then his the first wife he was devoted to all his life until she passed away? He was very happy to be an employee of her. He was in admiration of her and so on and so forth. So interesting, yeah? People mm. don't know this this fact. Anyway, uh, I wanted to find also more time to talk about the personal. I started this conversation with my personal journey, and I'm curious about yours as successful women in public health. This field, you know, is one where we see a lot of setbacks sometimes before we see progress, or we may have to wait years to see the fruits of our efforts, especially now during COVID. It can be tough. What keeps you going in this field? What motivates or inspires you? What would you tell young women entering the field of public health? Fatima, may I ask you to say a few words? Thank you, Dina. Yeah. For me, it's fight for women's rights and also make it true because we talked a lot about it but make it true make it uh, implementing it guarantee the women's rights in health it's much more difficult so from our side we are technicians no where we are trying to discuss with the politicians né, and share the decision with the influence public policy Bring these problems, you no know, the all the gender uh, violence because all gender segregation is violence against women. You no, know? and it's really important to put gender into the public policy, into the agenda of a gov government. I hope this last meeting that separated a huge amount of budget to invest, to empower women, it's make it true. We need to make it implementing and make it to change the situation. Take, this, take now this opportunity for implementation. And I believe we do it with social movements. We cannot do it just from our side. We need to engage with the social movements. We need to engage with women. They are suffering. And with them, we can make a transformation in this world and make the world more feminist. No, we have this touch of women, no empathy with our population. We have a lot of women and children suffering a lot. No, not just by violence, by other kinds of violence. And what is our, my words for the young people engaged in public health? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Fatima. And thank you, Christina, so much for this conversation. I wanted to wrap up with a couple of thoughts. We confirmed today that we're in a potential pivoting point for women's health. Uh, that means looking beyond maternal health and seeing gender as a cross-cutting. It means looking at the public health fundamentals differently, like how we collect and analyze data. It means public health professionals getting active in coalitions and so on and so forth. COVID-19 has been a disaster for women and set us back years. The opening panel of Generation Equality called COVID-19 the anti-feminist virus that really struck with me. We can learn from COVID-19 that with money, political will, and a broad coalition, we can make rapid progress and global change, but with equity lens as well, uh, gender and equity lens. And But with the cautionary tale of COVID-19, of course, is, is that we can't just be led by good intentions. Unfortunately, we've seen how, you know, uh, vaccine nationalism has taken over, even though in the beginning there were good intentions to, be, to have more global solidarity. 
So we have to have to be cautious about that. The women's health movement isn't going to be led by rich countries with power waiting for them to do the right thing. It has to be a priority for people everywhere from all walks of life. And we need to see women in positions of leadership and power, in ministries of health, in executive positions, and in civil society too. Uh, we need to increase like uh, the, U, the UN Generation Equality Forum, um, the, the head of UN Women, she said, you know, we are currently quarter managers. Now that's not enough. We need to be, we need to add another quarter. We need to be half. We need to be equal. Steve, back over to you. I want to thank you all. I could keep going and going on this topic with, with your expertise on the table. Um, I could just keep listening. Um, and I, and I, I hope we can each have each of you back on the public health power hour in the future on this topic or others. Um, we do like to close out each week with something our audience, each audience member can do to advance public health. Um, and we have fantastic discussions coming up. Next week, we'll be talking about cities, cycling, active transport, and health. And the, after that, we have a conversation about how big oil, tobacco, and food use advertising to hide the harms they cause and how creatives are fighting back. Um, and for this week, in terms of action, I'd like for you to take the spirit of our speakers um, and visit the Generation Equality Forum website. It's forum.generationequality.org. Um, they have an Act for Equal campaign with a few simple steps you can take to bring more attention and action to the movement for gender equality, including something simple like social memes you can share right now under the Act for Equal hashtag. Um, so please take a moment to take action on what you've heard today, advance public health, reimagine a world that's much healthier for all of us, including one with gender and health uh, parity. Um, and thank you, especially to all of our speakers for being public part of this Public Health Power Hour, um, and have a great day. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Public Health Power Hour. We hold these live conversations several times a month on Twitter Spaces. Follow us at VitalStrat on Twitter to join the conversation in real time. We'd love to see you there. To learn more about how Vital Strategies is reimagining public health, go to www.vitalstrategies.org. I'm Steve Hamill with Vital Strategies. Join us next time on the Public Health Power Hour.